Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the show. Xenoblade Chronicles is a series that I have a bit of an odd relationship with. During the hype for Super Smash Bros. 4, the protagonist of Xenoblade Chronicles, Shulk, was rumored to be part of the fighting roster. I remember thinking that he seemed cool, but then also thinking, no, there's no way he'd ever get in the game. Oops! But I do remember trying to play the game before Smash Brothers came out, and, uh, I don't know, I just couldn't get into it for some reason. Eventually, Smash Brothers arrived with Shulk in tow, and I got to know a little more about the series through that. Eventually, though, I had another shot at the game by playing the new 3DS version when it came out in 2015. It was a satisfying experience, but I wonder if it might have been a fluke. A couple years later, I tried to play Xenoblade Chronicles X for Wii U, and not only did the open world intimidate me, but I was playing on a TV with a very poor screen, so a lot of the smaller text was illegible. And then more recently, I tried to play Xenoblade Chronicles 2 on Switch, and I just couldn't get into it there either, for some reason. So, every Xenoblade game has turned me off from playing, in one way or another, and I only ever stuck it out with the first one. It might be fair to say that I'm actually not a fan of the series, I'm just a fan of the first game. But in complete fairness, I think that... I'd be willing to give X another chance if they put it on the Switch. Speaking of Switch, Xenoblade 1 is getting yet another revision in the form of the definitive edition of Xenoblade Chronicles. It's kind of funny, it seems like every five years there's a new version of Xenoblade Chronicles coming out. It adopts an art style that's a little bit closer to Xenoblade 2 while keeping the overall... How do I say this, uh... The design schemes are very faithful to the original. Everyone still looks like themselves. It's just drawn a little different. There's also some cut content that they brought in, at least from the looks of the trailer. It's a sort of epilogue chapter that only stars two of the party members and two brand new party members who look like they were very easy to animate to save on resources. So now allow me to do what I always do and give an overview of Xenoblade, the first one. I'll try to avoid spoilers where I can, since a lot of people are about to be introduced to the game for the first time, but a few things might slip through the cracks, fair warning. Going into the game five years ago, I noticed this was only spoken of with reverence. Ask anyone who knew of Xenoblade, and they'd say, This was one of the best games of all time, a true masterpiece of the medium that deserved as much recognition as Ocarina of Time and Final Fantasy VII, if not more than those games. Finally, video games had found their answer to Citizen Kane, an immaculate experience from start to finish. You're a better person for playing it. The sun will shine a bit warmer, people smile at you a bit longer, You're your taxes will be filed, your crops will be watered. What are you waiting for? Every second you aren't exposed to this game is a second of ignorant agony! So was the game really that good? Mostly. The game has its problems, and I'd like to discuss a few before we get to the good parts. In today's age, where everyone loves full open worlds, Xenoblade Chronicles is surprisingly linear, the world of the game takes place on the bodies of two gigantic beings, Bionis and Mechanis. 
Shulk lives in Colony 9, which is located roughly on the back of one of the Bionis' shins, and they were, in the past, invaded by robots from the Mechonis. These robots are called Mechon. Also, the humans are called Hans. Uh, that's just kind of saying the stage. I'm not, I'm not in the bad part yet. The thing about linearity is that his quest ultimately takes him from the calf of the Bionis to the top of the Bionis in a straight line. In each region, each body part, you'll find a few side areas, but they're just side areas. They don't really offer too many things in the way of secrets, just experience gained from stumbling upon the areas and... Uh, sometimes a really tough enemy that you can't kill until several hours later due to the level gap. But the story is mostly in a straight line. Uh, Note how you'll never have to return to a previous location once the plot is finished. For a series that prides itself on massive, sprawling worlds, the first game tended to keep the player on some rails. Now, I don't mind linearity, but I often see it conflated with sincerely bad game design, so I felt it was worth mentioning. For me personally, the bigger problem were the errands that you had to run. There's not a lot in the way of minigames or anything. Most of the side quests are just talking to an NPC, and they want you to gather a certain drop from an enemy. A lot of it with that enemy only appearing at a certain time of day, at a certain part of Bionis, localized entirely in one area. And some of these quests are on a time limit, as in you can't do them after the plot reaches a certain point. It's a little irritating, and sometimes you can only do a side quest if you've raised your affinity in a region. And how do you do that? By doing more side quests. You have to be trusted enough to do a side quest... And honestly, I never got a lot out of the side quests. The rewards never opened up a new region in Bionis or anything. They never really told me a whole lot about a character that I didn't already know or that I really cared about. You get experience for doing it. That, that That's neat. You get experience for that and for exploring, so it's not just about fighting. But what does it all come down to? It's just It's just a thing you can do. The story is also a bit slow. About a fourth of the way into the game, Shulk discovers that he needs to go to a certain point on the Bionis, and the next several hours of gameplay are devoted to getting Shulk to point B. And this vaguely defined goal is all we have for a few hours. It's kind of a road trip at that point. We meet Ricky and Melia around that time, and Melia's hometown has some neat story beats and some cool foreshadowing. I found myself wondering when we'd get to our destination already. But no, we have to solve some local problems first. And if that wasn't enough, the area right outside the destination, when you finally get there, they force you to explore a little more to find some arbitrary switches or something, just to pad the level out a bit longer. When the plot picks up for the next few areas, though, it's a lot of highlights. Just high moment after high moment. And then, eventually, it scales down to a crawl with a lot of samey-looking environments for the next several areas. A lot of lazy excuses to pad out those areas. But you eventually encounter the leader of Mechanis, and everything from there is solid. 
There is a level that people don't like very close to the end of the game. It has an annoying boss battle, but I didn't have that much trouble with the area. And honestly, I think that's it for the bad stuff. There are certainly things I don't care for, like the gem crafting or trying to remember some of the subtler nuances of the battle system or different character... I don't even remember what this mechanic was called, but characters had three to four personality traits that had different skills or benefits attached to them. I don't know what that was all about. None of that got in the way too much, though. It might have kept me from doing whatever fun side quest actually called out to me for a change, but that was all few and far in between. Let's finally get to the good stuff of the game. As you'd expect from a JRPG, the story is, uh, actually kind of standard. Unassuming country boy finds his hometown ransacked, vows revenge against an enemy army, plucks a special sword, encounters a special princess somewhere on his travels, he ends up dealing with forces far bigger than he ever could have imagined, the fate of the world on the line. But just because a story has cliches, it doesn't mean it's bad. Quite the contrary. I'm of the belief that there are no original stories anymore, just original ways to tell an old story, and Xenoblade is told in a pretty original way. Shulk's special sword is the Monado, and among its many applications in battle, it grants Shulk the ability to see a potential future. Usually it's a bad future, so Shulk now has the knowledge needed to avoid a future. Usually. It's almost as if the Monado is warning Shulk. Interestingly, Shulk is not the first person in the story to use the Monado. He gets it a little ways into it after someone else is using it. But he's the only one to use it without any physical drawbacks, and he's the only one who gets to see the future. As the story progresses, we learn a little bit more about why that is, and it was really engaging when the plot hit those moments. As we go, we're introduced to a lot of likable characters, like Ricky and Melia I mentioned before. To be honest, I like most of the characters in this story. I've always been of the mind that a good character can elevate a bad story, not that this story is really bad. So, let's run down our mains. Shulk is the main character. He's a bit more reserved than Smash Brothers would have you believe. He's a pretty cool guy. I didn't expect such a calm gearhead to be an RPG party leader, but I think it's a nice change of pace from a kind of shonen type of guy. Shulk does follow the same story beats as a lot of those protagonists, but he has his own Shulk-like way of going about it. He's also very easy to use in combat. This is a game that allows you to control any of the party members as a leader. So, they did well making him really accessible and really balanced in a lot of ways. Fiora is Shulk's love interest, and her entire character is that she's Shulk's love interest. Everything important about her ties back to being Shulk's love interest. No disrespect to her actress, but she also had kind of the weakest voice acting of the party, which is usually the fault of the directors, not the actors. Despite all that, though, I don't hate Fiora. She's got some neat things going for her. I just wish they did a little bit more. Ryan is Shulk's best friend, also Fiora's friend, but mostly Shulk's. 
He's a big, boisterous guy who likes to make cheesy one-liners, but despite all that, and the constant disrespect from the other party members, he has a good head on his shoulders. Even from his first scenes, you can tell Ryan takes his job as a soldier seriously, and that even extends to his moveset. Sharla is the healer, but I never had much use for a dedicated healer. It doesn't really jive with the gameplay here. She has some of the least relevance to the story, too, so I tend to forget she's there. Dunban's cool. He's the main character in the prologue. He uses the Monado before Shulk even does. And he makes this heroic last stand in a robot war. I thought he died, but then I saw him alive in Smash Brothers, and then... Uh, the part where I stopped in the Wii game is very early. You learn almost right away that Dunban survives the war that he was in, so that shows just how quickly I dropped it. Dunban's cool, though. He expertly plays the role of being the party's older, wiser voice of caution. Ricky is the mascot character. He has a heart to him that a lot of mascot characters don't get. He's got some depth going for him, but uh, he's mainly the mascot character. Very useful in combat, though. Melia is the aforementioned special princess, and she probably has the most story relevance outside of Shulk, and I find it all rather interesting. Her combat gimmick is that she's the mage of the group. They don't really call it magic, they call it ether and stuff. And her combat gimmick is a little hard to figure out at first. Took me most of the game to fully wrap my head around it. The thing is that she can summon elements around her to provide passive buffs to the party based on the element. And she can hold, I think, up to three of them at once before dispersing them for an attack. The play that I see most people recommend is to keep two certain buffs active and then just use the third one as the attack, and then get a new third one, and then attack with it. Just keep those other two buffs going. Really galaxy brain playstyle with Melia there. Also, for Doctor Who fans, she's voiced by uh, Jenna Coleman, who I believe was one of the Doctor's assistants. I don't really know much about Doctor Who, though. All these characters are likable, and they're surprisingly mature, and they're all adults about the situations they find themselves in. I'm used to having some kind of wacky hijinks or inter-party drama in my RPGs, so it was refreshing to see everyone get along as well as they do. Yeah, everyone feels the need to pick on Ryan, but he's not a bad guy, and they're all, they're all pretty good people. Even a lot of the supporting characters are entertaining in their own rights. Dixon keeps showing up in different places throughout the story, keeping me wondering where he'll show up next. Alvis has a lot of intrigue going for him, and Metalface. <laughs> He's one of those villains you just love to hate. He's basically the Ridley of this game. The Bionis is a very inventive setting, too. The petrified body of a colossus, roughly the size of Japan or so. Shulk and his friends are like gnats in comparison. The unique shape makes for some inventive level design and world-building at times, and the whole body thing is masked very well by the fact that grass and rocks have started to grow on the Bionis. There is an area that was cut from the game, the shoulder of the Bionis. It's well known among fans of the game just for how almost complete it was. 
reached to the point where the definitive edition on the Switch is including the shoulder as part of the epilogue chapter. Somehow. I'm not really sure what the details behind that are, but that was cool of them. It's just impressive to know how far this game has come. For a time, it was really hard to get your hands on Xenoblade, at least in North America. Nintendo only allowed GameStop to sell the game, and they even had used copies of the game sold for prices that matched new copies, because they would sell a lot of new copies as quote-unquote used. I think it was something about opening the boxes and closing them again so that they would technically be used in, like, the loosest sense. So the game could only be sold in one chain for a high price, usually understocked. It was crazy. This was probably so they could exploit the hype that fans had built for this game, because Xenoblade was part of Operation Rainfall. It was this fan campaign to get Nintendo to localize Xenoblade Chronicles, The Last Story, and Pandora's Tower, all back during the Wii era. It's a bit of a landmark moment for fans of Nintendo games, because as the Earthbound and Mother fans could tell you, it's not easy asking Nintendo to localize their games. The fact that this worked at all is astounding, though Nintendo officials will never outright say that the campaign was responsible for the games getting localized. They said that for Operation Moonfall, too, which was to get Majora's Mask remade for 3DS. Though, a lot of the circumstances are different for both those games, and who knows, maybe Nintendo's actually right, but still, kind of neat to think of this as a win for the fans. A lot of the mystique and the rarity of Xenoblade has gone away since they had that remake for the new Nintendo 3DS. Remake of the game was put on that. That was also made available for the Nintendo Wii U's eShop. And now we're getting another remake for Switch. So it's not not really a niche anymore. But I'm always glad to see a Nintendo series get bigger and better and more beloved. Except Animal Crossing. Throw in Shulk's involvement with Super Smash Bros. and a sequel and a spin-off, Xenoblade goes from being that little RPG that could into being a New Blood Nintendo franchise. That's no small feat, even if Xenoblade X and Xenoblade 2 didn't do much for me. Of course, I'd be remiss not to talk about the music. The band Ace, veteran composer Yoko Shimomura, and the hard-working Manami Kyoto have all contributed a different number of songs to the soundtrack. Ace and Shimomura tend to get the most accolades, but take a look at the official soundtrack and you'll notice that Kyoto did a lot of the heavy lifting, more than Shimomura, actually. But which songs are my favorite? A lot of them are the ones featured in Super Smash Bros., specifically Engage the Enemy and You Will Know Our Names, but that's not special at all. I expect both those to be in every Xenoblade fan's top five songs. They just do their job so well, though, especially if you listen to both those songs in the order I named them. In particular, I single out You Will Know Our Names as my number one favorite video game composition of all time, at least I did for one point in my life. I don't know if I still agree with that, but it's still up there. As for something a little more obscure, though not that obscure, To the Last Battle would be another favorite song. This plays during the final dungeon of the game, and it's everything you could ask for for a high-stakes final dungeon theme. When I first heard the song, I didn't know I was in the final dungeon. I was still expecting another one, so I was like, wow, I wonder what the next area will sound like if this one sounds so good. 
Oops. Kind of a funny moment at the end. And, uh, that's about all I have to say about Xenoblade Chronicles. Very good game, and it deserves much of the praise it gets. It's not a game without its faults. I don't think I could call it the best game of all time, and I don't know if I'd even put it in my top ten, but it's a game I can respect for being true to itself and having a style all its own. And I feel similarly about its successors, despite what other grievances I might have. So, uh, I'm looking forward to playing the Switch version of the game when it comes out. I've got a few other things on my plate right now, though, that need my attention first. But, someday. Someday it'll be Rhine time again. If you like listening to me on the BitCast, then be sure to follow the BitCast on Twitter and subscribe to the show on Podcast One's website and app. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next one. Listen to BitCast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.